Good morning. I thank you for uh, the invitation to return today. Um, the psalmist says that children are in heritage from the Lord. Blessed is he who has a quiverful. Since I've seen you last, the Lord has added uh, our second great-grandchild to our quiver. And we're grateful for that. Um, her parents didn't quite leave enough time to get to the birthing center, and so her daddy delivered her in the back seat of their car. Uh, but he's a Marine, and I guess Marines can do anything. So, um, But we're grateful uh, for that and grateful that the Lord continues to add uh, new ones to your church quiver as well. I invite you to go with me to the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, a very short chapter, and, and yet I think maybe uh, the richest of all the chapters in this historical book. 2 Samuel chapter 9, would you give careful attention because I'm reading to you the very word of the living God. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him hesed love, kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he is crippled in his feet. The king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he lives in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you hesed love. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then David called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He continued to be lame in both of his feet. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have read ancient words, and yet because they are your words, they are as true and as powerful as the day in which they were penned. We would ask that the Holy Spirit, who sovereignly determined that this bit of history might be recorded forever, would be pleased to make it anew and afresh to our understanding that it would give us great hope in David's son, the giver of Hesed love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in the middle of 2 Samuel, just to get her historical bearings, King Saul is dead. The subsequent insurrection led by one of Saul's surviving sons, Ishbosheth, and Saul's able general, Abner, after seven years, has been successfully put down, and David has received the throne. David has moved from Hebron, where he spent the first six and a half years of his 40-year reign, and he has now moved into and taken possession of Jerusalem. He has built a magnificent palace using the cedars of Lebanon. After years of neglect during the reign of Saul, the Ark of the Covenant has been brought out of mothballs, and David has pitched a tent in downtown Jerusalem, a new tabernacle, and the worship of Jehovah has been reinstated after many years of neglect during the reign of Saul. David very much wishes to build a permanent house for the Lord, and yet Nathan, the prophet, David's pastor, informs David that that privilege will not be his, but his son Solomon's. But Nathan does deliver to David the blueprints, the architectural drawings for the temple. The borders of the kingdom have been secured and Israel is at peace. And quite recently in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, Pastor Nathan has come by and pronounced to David that David will not build a house for the Lord, but the Lord will establish a perpetual dynasty house for David. And we have the Davidic covenant spelled out in detail 
in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel that one of David's bloodline will sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And so it is that David is secure, at peace, the kingdom is prospering. What is a king to do? Well, let's pretend that it's maybe a Tuesday morning. David is on the balcony having his coffee. He's musing, he's thinking, he's reflecting on all that has happened. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, he recalls a bit of trivia an event that had happened years ago and he had almost forgotten. Before he was king, he had been especially befriended by Saul's son, Crown Prince Jonathan. Jonathan had always known that even though he was the firstborn of Saul, he would not be Israel's second king. And he was devoted to David, gave David his sword and his belt. The last time that Prince Jonathan and David met, Jonathan demanded that David make him a covenant promise. Jonathan said that the day will come when you will be king. And I don't know if I will still be alive to see that, but David, I'm pleading with you, I'm imploring you to swear a covenant that you will show Hesed love, loving kindness, mercy, undeserved kindness to my house. David swore that covenant. Jonathan died next to his father on Mount Gilboa in the battle against the Philistines years ago. David lost track of the family. And he's sitting on the balcony this Tuesday morning having his coffee. He says, I wonder, I wonder, could there be any descendants of the house of Saul and especially of my friend Jonathan. For if there is, I am covenant bound to show Hesed love. It was customary in ancient times when a new dynasty came to power that they would exterminate, get rid of, destroy any remnants of a previous dynasty that might cause trouble. And so if there were any descendants of Saul, they had gone underground. They had made themselves scarce. And so David orders that one of his servants begin an investigation to determine whether or not there might be somewhere within the kingdom a descendant of Saul and especially a descendant of Jonathan. That brings us then to the shortest chapter, only 13 verses, the shortest chapter in 2 Samuel. 
Some might see this chapter as nothing more than a human interest story of little theological or doctrinal importance. Some might suggest that if this chapter were lost, nothing of great consequence would be lost. It's just a nice story. I would argue that the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel may be the gemstone of the whole book. It is a brief but meaty Old Testament picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would be tempted to argue that we could lose all the other chapters in 2 Samuel and have left the richest presentation of salvation by grace found in the historical books. I've got three points this morning. David, the redeemer figure. Mephibosheth, the sinner figure. And thirdly, the invitation to feast at the king's table. David, the redeemer. Mephibosheth, the sinner. The invitation to feast at the king's table. First, we meet David. The sovereign takes the initiative. Who goes looking for whom? The shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep. The lost sheep who does not want to be found. The lost sheep who is living in terror, assuming if he is found, he will come under the wrath and condemnation of the sovereign king. And so David initiates the inquiry, the investigation to seek and to save he who is lost. David, much like his grandfather Boaz, who showed Hesed love to Ruth, the Moabitess. When Ruth goes and lies down at the edge of the threshing floor and startles Boaz in the middle of the night. And Ruth asks that Boaz might cast the edge of his garment over her. That was an idiomatic expression from the Pentateuch. Ruth understood the concept of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, that it was the responsibility of the most closely related bachelor in the family to marry the widow of his relative and to raise up a seed for the deceased. And even though Boaz was much older, and even though Ruth was by birth a Moabitess, but by profession, of faith, a Yahweh follower, Boaz shows to her Hesed love. David would have known that story. It was part of his family history. And so it is that he is quick to seek out 
Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Paul writes in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were out yet outcasts, while we were yet Mephibosheths, Christ died for us. What's David's motive? What does Mephibosheth possibly have to bring to the table? How can David's life be enriched by associating with Mephibosheth? Just as I am, without one plea. What an appropriate song to have sung a few moments ago. Mephibosheth didn't have anything with which to ingratiate himself to the king. He knew it. David knew it. David's motive was simply unconditional love rooted in the covenant made with his friend Jonathan, which I referenced a few moments ago. We won't take time to go there, but it's in 1 Samuel 20, if you want to read that later, where David and Jonathan swear a covenant a bond of Hesed love. David remembered that. Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Mephibosheth, the sinner figure. Mephibosheth's name means shameful one, full of shame. Does that not give you pause? Those of you who are parents and have had the wonderful privilege of choosing the names of your children, would it ever cross your mind to name your newborn son full of shame? Why would Jonathan do that? Was he really ashamed of his? No, he wasn't. In the chronology of uh, the kings of Israel in 1 Chronicles 9, we won't take time to go there, but you can check it out, 1 Chronicles 9 verse 40, we find that Mephibosheth's birth name, the name that appeared on his birth certificate, was not Mephibosheth, shameful one. It was Merib-Baal. Merib-Baal means he who contends against Baal, a Baal fighter. Well, that would be a noble name for Jonathan to have given his son, one who stands against apostasy and unbelief in Baal worship. Well, where did this Mephibosheth name come from? Because other than that genealogy of official names in First Chronicles, Mephibosheth is always called by his nickname, by this name of dishonor. Well, if you turn back just a couple pages, um, well, it's more than a couple. Um, well, didn't make a note of it, but um, 
back when Saul and his sons are fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Um, Mephibosheth is a young prince. He's Saul's grandson, but just a toddler. And so he is left in the care of the governess and a nanny back at Saul's house. Jonathan and his dad and other brothers have gone to war. Well, you know that the Philistines prevail, that Saul and several of his sons died on that mountain, including Jonathan. And when a word gets back to the royal residence that the cause has been lost, the king has died, that this little boy's daddy, Jonathan, has given his life in defense of the kingdom. The nanny does what a good nanny should do. She fears that the Philistines might march on to the royal residence and destroy any blood relatives. And so hastily, she throws some diapers in a bag and she scoops up little Merebbeel. And apparently she trips, maybe, on the steps It's in the fourth chapter, I just remembered. Second Samuel 4. And Mephibosheth, or Merebbeel, is dropped, and his feet, probably ankles, are broken. And they were never properly set. And so he was lame from that day on. Probably got around with a cane. He was not totally incapacitated but permanently walked with a limp or had to have walking aids. And so he picked up this name of shameful one. Mephibosheth had grown up, years have passed, maybe 10, 15 years. Mephibosheth himself is a grown man now and married, and he has a son, Micah. So he's probably a man in his 20s, very late teens. David is into his eighth, ninth, tenth year of his reign. He's settled in Jerusalem. Mephibosheth has fled and has politically gone underground. He knows David is alive, obviously, but David doesn't know he's alive, and Mephibosheth would like to keep it that way. Mephibosheth assumes that he would be considered a potential enemy, an unwanted leftover of the previous dynasty. And so he has fled to Lodabar. Now, if you look in your Bible atlases, you won't find Lodabar, or if you do, I have found it on a couple Bible maps, but there's always a question mark in parentheses because nobody knows where Lodabar is. I think it's safe to assume that Lodabar was east of the Dead Sea over in modern-day Jordan on the very barren 
the, the land that Reuben got as an inheritance, the least desirable part of Israel. He's living with Machir, son of Amiel. Later, when David is fleeing from Absalom's rebellion and he and his family crossed the Jordan, they, they left Jerusalem in such haste they didn't really have time to take everything they needed. When David gets across the Jordan and, and living at Mahanaim, Machir, son of Amiel from Lodabar, is one of the one nobles who brings David victuals, brings him some bedding and some cheese and some wine. and That's all we know, but, but we assume that Lodabar was certainly not a major city, but a, a location. And, and, and we don't know why Mekir, son of Amiel, took Mephibosheth in, but he does. And he's giving him a, a safe place to live. Though we don't know where Lodabar is, we do know what that name means. Lodabar means place of no grass, place of no pasture, barren land. Are you seeing yourself in this chapter yet? You and I are Mephibosheths, born, dead, in trespasses, perpetually crippled, unable to provide for ourselves. And where do we live? We live in Lodabar. We live outside the realm of the great king. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. Mephibosheth, a picture of a, of a sinner, a picture of you, a picture of me. And then we have the invitation to feast at the king's table. Look at verse 7. Well, above that, David sent and brought Mephibosheth. They didn't ask if Mephibosheth, he sent and brought. Catechism, question 37, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's sovereign spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. David didn't send a postcard to Mephibosheth and say, if you're ever in Jerusalem, drop by for tea. David sent a contingent of soldiers, and they show up at Machir's house, and they have a warrant. Is there a man by the name of Mephibosheth living here? And if so, we want him. The king demands his audience. I, I suspect it was a two- or three-day walk or journey from Lodabar to Jerusalem. 
Can you imagine the thoughts going through Mephibosheth's mind on that very, very long journey? What awaits me? I thought I had successfully melted into the woodwork and disappeared. Somehow he found me. Will he kill my son, Micah, too? And so it's little wonder the very first words out of the great shepherd's mouth, verse 7, David said to him, do not fear. You're aware that if you get a Bible concordance and you look up the word fear, it's column after column. God says, fear not more often than anything else he says in all of Scripture. Sometimes he says it through angels or apostles or prophets or himself. But the thing that God says most, the very first place he says it is Genesis 15, 1, when Abraham fears he will not have an heir. And God comes to Abraham, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. And from Genesis 15, 1 on through, God says, fear not more than he says anything else in all of Scripture. And David, the ancestor of the Christ, says to this lowly, helpless, shameful one, fear not. I intend you no harm. Indeed, it is my intention to show you hesed. It's the third time in this chapter that Hebrew word is there. Hesed love is unconditional, undeserved, unmerited covenant love. Young man, I made a promise to your dad before you were born. I intend to keep it. And so Mephibosheth is invited to come with his son, Micah. Ziba and his sons and employees become the first sharecroppers in history. They are going to work Saul's farm. David's going to give the deed to Mephibosheth. It's his farm now. But Ziba and his work crew will work and skim profits off the top. They'll, they'll get a fair wage. David's not enslaving Ziba. But the first fruits, the first profits of the land will go to Mephibosheth so that he has the dignity of income. Not that he's going to need it. Because he's going to live in the palace of the king. Isaac Watts' hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. One of the verses, "'Twas the same grace that spread the feast, that gently forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin." None of us come to Christ 
on our own initiative. We are those straying, wandering sheep who do not love the fold. It's the sovereign, hesed love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the blessed, providential work of the Trinity to know us, to call us, to awaken us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and soften our hearts. We are citizens of Lodabar. But the good news is that all are welcome to come. Notice that last verse. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he always ate at the king's table. I especially love to preach the sermon on communion Sundays, but it works any week because it's the gospel. Notice David did not say to Mephibosheth, I want you to go down the street and see that orthopedic surgeon, and when you can get your ankles fixed and walk in here like a man, you can eat at the king's table. If that had been the case, then Mephibosheth never could have eaten at the king's table. When you come to the Lord's Supper, you're still crippled. You don't come because you've lived a successful week and you didn't sin this week, so... So often that phrase, examine yourselves so that you do not partake in an unworthy manner, and, and that sometimes causes us not to come because, well, of course I'm not worthy. No, that exhortation means to examine is your hope and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Is he worthy, then because you've been covered by his blood and imputed his righteousness, you're worthy. Come on to the table. The king invites you to eat at his table all the days of your life on the merits of his son. Beloved, that's the gospel. You'll never live long enough to be good enough to come to the king's table on your own merits. But you can always come in the merits of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, there's one gospel. There's one proclamation of the good news that God loves sinners, hesed love, unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, all Mephibosheths can eat at the king's table. We give thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.